All right, well, we're in part two of uh, Take the Land, and uh, I'm excited. And today we're going to learn another faith lesson. And in this series, we're looking at the Israelites' journey uh, into the promised land. And we have no idea how long this series is going to last. I told you that is uh, one of the scariest things for me because I've, I've never preached a series that I didn't know how long it was going to last, and yet the Lord is not giving me any other series. And I think that's intentional, obviously, from him. And he said, I just want you to teach from this, and then I'll just kind of see what happens. And I'm telling you, I've never done that in the history. I'm like, I've got to have this thing organized six months out, eight months out, and I'm just taking one Sunday at a time, trusting the Lord. So we're looking at this journey that, and last week I invited you on this journey, to watch this nation travel to their promised land, and then to see what faith lessons we can extract from that in our life. And if my mic keeps doing this, you can hand me a handheld if I need to. That's fine. Um, But what we can learn from this journey and how we can apply that to our life. And I know that none of you are called to take the land of Canaan, but you have, uh, there is land in your life that God wants to take. That is to say that he wants to fulfill certain promises that he has for your life, and he wants you to fulfill those things. And as do I, and as so should all the fellow believers, we want you to fulfill the plans that God has for your life. So we're trying to learn from what we can learn from this journey and then how we can apply it to our life. So I want to begin this way. Uh, I titled the message, Their Mission, Our Mission. And if you're taking notes, you should write that at the top. And um, if you don't take notes, that just basically means you plan on memorizing everything I tell you today. So (laughs) you should take notes. Um, I mean, I just think you should. All right. So their mission, our mission. Okay. That is the title of today's message. I don't know about you, but I find it difficult to get my children to obey. Um. I love my children, and I don't want to get up here and just bash them. Um, if you could start the clock for me back there so that I don't run out of time, thank you. But um, I, uh, you know, I love my kids. I think they are great kids. I think, you know, most of the time they obey, but they don't always do what I tell them to do, which I think is a trick that children play on parents just to confuse you. Because they'll obey you you know, and you're like, whoa, you know, and then they do it the first time. You've ever had those moments? And then like a couple minutes later, you have to ask them nine times to do something else. You're like, well, what, just, what changed? So it's just confusing for parents, I think. Um, so it's not just children that have a hard time obeying. You all have a hard time obeying. Like you don't all follow the rules. Um, road, road signs and things like that. Uh, there's still road signs. Some of you are driving and you still don't know what it means. And, and you don't Google it to find out. And you're breaking the rule and you don't even know it. So I was trying to think about what rules, what, what rule, if you would, have we all broken? You could use the word law or rule. And I thought, we all have a problem with obedience. I mean, just tell your neighbor, if you're comfortable with this, you have a problem with obedience. Now, all the husbands are not wanting to do this, I see. <laughs> But the wives had no problem. They're like, you have a problem. Okay. Um, so, but, but we all, we all have an issue with obedience, right? Obedience is hard. Um, so I was thinking about what is a 
what is a rule that we've all broken? And I'm convinced. Now, I, I'm sure there's somebody in the room who wants to raise their hand and try to act like you've never broken this rule. I just think you've, you've broken this rule at some point. I think we've all broken the pool rules at some point in our life. And the pool, you know, the swimming pools, the hotels or resorts or at apartment complexes. You've ever seen, some of you didn't even know there was rules to the pool. That's my point. And the reason why I'm convinced that a lot of us have broken those rules is because whoever stops to read the pool rules? That's my point. See, none of you have ever read the pool rules. And so there's a good chance you've broken a pool rule. True? I'll give you one pool rule that is there and, and, and you've all broken it. And you know where I'm going with this. You've all peed in the pool. Don't, no one ever gets up and goes to the bathroom. Okay, raise your hand. I'm just kidding. I'm not <laughs> but we know how many of you would raise your hand. Just let the church say amen. There you go. There it is. That's confession right there. So I knew we all broke that rule at some point. All right, so some of us still break the rule. And we're adults. And we yell at our kids, get out of the pool. Anyways, but... So, we all have a problem with obedience, and here's something I know that we all know. If you're taking notes, write this little sentence down. Obedience is a choice, right? Obedience is a choice. As children, we figured this out. We didn't have to obey. You may get consequences to the disobedience in your home. You, know, you may have not, but you may have got some consequences. Some were really severe. Some may have not been so severe. But you chose to obey nonetheless, and what made you decide if you were going to obey or not obey is really dependent upon the consequence. If the consequence, in this case, felt like, well, I think the act of disobedience is going to be a better reward than the consequence, I'm just going to not obey it. Because I think, you know, eventually if I keep doing this enough, then the consequence will go away. Or if you were so afraid of the consequence, then you decided to obey. And so it was kind of like this thing that we just psychologically do in our brains where we're like, well, how bad is the consequence to what I'm about to do? And then maybe you'll weigh it out. And some of you still do this. In fact, you do this in your own jobs. Yes, we do. We, we you know, show up to work a certain time or we push the deadline a little bit further or we uh, don't always say what we should say and just, you know, all these little things we try to push the boundaries. Don't we, you know, try to figure out how far can we go? And, and we still do that even as adults in so many different ways where we break the rules. Uh, another rule that's coming to mind that we've all broken is you don't return the carts to the uh, proper place at Publix or Walmart or wherever you shop. All, you're supposed to put the carts not in the parking spaces, but put them back in the thing. But then you park in the wrong spot and you didn't think about it and you see it's like, you know, four spaces over and no one walks four spaces, so you just leave it where it is so some other car and somebody else can come in and do it. You've all broken that rule too, Right? I mean, those carts don't just appear in the shopping parking lots out of nowhere. I know it's none of you brave followers and loving your Jesus people. You always return your shopping cart, but okay. Obedience is a choice. All right, so we're going to see something about obedience, and I hope that you learn something about obedience. And um, as we delve into this, I think it's going to reveal something probably way deeper than you've ever maybe even thought. That's, that's my hope. 
Exodus chapter 19, we're going to, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Exodus 19. That's where we're going to mainly teach out of. But the Israelites have a problem with obedience. And if you read through the story, you, you know that already. There's obedience and disobedience and obedience and disobedience. It's kind of like this roller coaster ride. Many like most of us, if not all of us in this room. So the Exodus uh, chapter 19 uh, is where we're going to be. And God has promised them to take the land. He leads them out of Egypt. He says, I've got a promise for your life. And it wasn't about geographical territory. It wasn't like just the ultimate purpose. It was way bigger than that. But he's using land as a, as a starting point, if you would. That's why we titled the series, Take the Land. But it's really about fulfilling God's promises for their lives. In this case, a whole nation. All right, so God hears their cry. That's how this story begins, by the way. The slaves, and I'm going to use the number two million. I don't know the number of exact number of slaves, but I'm going to use the number two million. Um, and then that might be close. So you have a million or two million people. They're slaves. And they're the least of, of all. They don't have a lot. They're the weakest country, weakest nation, don't have strong military. Um, they're peasants. They're nobodies. They're, they're, they're just like the low of the totem pole in society and in the world. And this is who God elects to reveal himself through this nation of Israel. And that's intentional, by the way, as well. But he, he reveals himself. He hears their cry. And so he calls Moses. Moses sees this burning bush one day. And God says, Moses, you're the guy for the job. You're going to take this nation from slavery into this promised land. You're going to move them from here to there. And Moses, after a couple of excuses, he says, yes. And he says, okay, God, I'll do it. And, uh, and so they begin this journey. Eventually, they're let go, and they go on this promised land. Now, they part the Red Sea, right? You remember this? You got about a million or two million something people lined up trying to cross this body of water. And uh, they go through this body of water to this great miracle, and they witness this whole thing happen. And then the chariots and all the soldiers of Pharaoh are coming after them, the enemy. And then they get swept in the water. And it's this great miracle of God. And they're obviously convinced, like, wow, God is real. This is incredible. This God that's revealing himself to us, he is the God and the only God. And they're moved by this. So they start to, now what? Well, God leads them a roundabout way. We read this last week. And he takes them through the desert, which is really interesting. Uh, he takes them from slavery to a desert, little shade, little provision, little water, little food. But I'm going to take you to the desert. And he starts to prepare them for the promised land. So they didn't go from slavery to promised land. They went from slavery to desert. Well, which is like messed up when you think about it. Like, come on, God. Take me to the promised land. That's why you got me out of slavery. But he takes them through the desert. And the question becomes, why the desert? Like, why did God choose that geographical location? Why? Why, why the desert? Why not? Takes them along a beach coast, you know, with beautiful sunsets all the time or something. I don't know. Why the desert? Well, we find the answer to this. And at least one of the answers, I think, is fair. Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. I'll get to chapter 19 in a minute. He says, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of, from under the, under the yoke of the Egyptians. The Hebrew word for take there is the word lakah. 
Laka can mean to take, uh, to take a grip of, um, to catch, to fetch, um, to bring back or to bring together. It has a variety of meanings to it, but one of the meanings to it, and I think this is probably proper in this context, it actually was a word that was used in Hebrew to marry, M-A-R-R-Y, to marry a wife. So God takes this Hebrew nation, his, his group of people, and he says, I'm going to make you my bride. I'm going to come together with you. And marriage is an interesting word here in this context when you think about it because you have to think about how God views marriage as to what he's doing when he uses the word laka. Well, if he says, I'm going to laka, we're going to laka, I'm going to marry you. Let's think about what his definition of marriage is and why people get married anyways. And he says, well, remember Genesis chapter 2, he creates Adam and he says, it's not good for Adam or man to be alone. I've got to create for him a suitable helper. So in other words, what God is doing is he's saying, I am going to be the husband, you are going to be the bride, and you are going to be my helper. Which then begs the question, what do you want us to help you with? You called us out of slavery, into the desert, to marry us, because you want us to be your helper. What exactly do you want our help with? Doesn't necessarily need the help, but he wants the help. That's the question I really want to answer today. So if God wants a helper, there must be a mission that he wants help with, something he wants to accomplish, and God gives the mission in Exodus 19. This is how Moses describes the mission that he received. Exodus 19, verse 3. Then Moses went up to God. This is at the mountain of Sinai. There's some desert land, just imagine it, red, rocky mountain and rough terrain, which is another symbol, I think, of the journey. In preparation for your promise, it will be rocky. It's not always smooth as you follow Jesus. He used the geographical location of the desert for so many symbolic reasons. But... It says that Moses went to the God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. Now verse four starts and then we're going to end it where God ends his statement in verse six. So these few verses is where they get the mission that they are to do. Here's what I want you to tell them. Here's why I have brought them out of slavery and into the desert. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings, which is a picture, by the way, of creation. When an eagle is pushed out of its nest when it's young and it's time for it to fly, the mother of the eagle, the adult eagle, will fly underneath the eagle, and if the eagle starts to drop, the eagle will then lift it back up so it doesn't quit. It's a picture of what God is saying, I will carry you. And I carried you out of slavery, and I'll get you through wherever we're going. And I brought you out myself, and I'll carry you. Verse 6. Now, if you obey, 
Interesting caveat. In other words, I'm going to give you something to do here, but first I've got to tell you, it is dependent on your obedience. So it's really going back to you. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Then he makes an important statement, although the whole earth is mine. In other words, other nations don't get jealous. I love you all. All the earth is mine, but I'm electing you to be my treasured possession. Here's what he's saying. There's value in you. Now, of course, later on, Christ, Jesus, would come through this nation. And so there's value in that. Also, notice that later on, Jesus would say, wherever your treasure is, say it, there your heart is also. So my heart is with you. I am with you, and you are valuable to me. You're my suitable helper. So there's value in you. He's not saying you're my favorite. He's saying you're valuable to me. Then he says, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me. Here's the mission. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. End of story. You brought us out of slavery, across the Red Sea, and just so you know, it's a 40-day travel by foot from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. 40 days, a month, a little over, of traveling by foot with a few million people. You bring me to the top of a mountain, and that's what you want me to tell them. I want you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is the mission that they are given. In other words, he says, go tell the nation of Israel. That's why they're here. The reason you're here is because I want you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's why I called you out of slavery. I called you out of slavery because I want you to be a kingdom of priests. And I want you to be a holy nation. And I need your help. I want your help might be more of a proper term. So let's look up the word kingdom. The word kingdom is Hebrew for dominion or reign. In English, when we say the word kingdom, we think of territory. The United Kingdom. We think of a geographical space. He's the ruler of a kingdom. He has a place, and it's determined by some boundary marker that's set in geography. But in Hebrew, that's not what kingdom implies. In this context, in this culture, when someone would use the word kingdom... It implied wherever the king is obeyed. That's why the word means also dominion or reign. In other words, wherever he reigns. One could also say, wherever he is obeyed. That is kingdom. Where my will is done, you'll be a kingdom. 
you'll be a place where my will is accomplished through. So I want you to be a kingdom. In other words, in order to build the kingdom, to fulfill the things that I need to fulfill, I'm calling out these people, and the people must be people who will make me their king. They will obey me. They will do my will. Their mission is to do the will of God. And he says, first, I want you to tell them they must be a kingdom. And if there's going to be a kingdom, there has to be a king. And I will be their king. Their master. By the way, this is not about a salvation thing. Salvation is by grace. But the kingdom is in those who are saved by grace. It's how they live. We'll get to that a little bit later. Isaiah 52 says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news, the good news of peace and salvation, the news that God of Israel reigns. Here's an interesting thought that you may have never thought about. The good news was before Jesus was ever even born on earth. Jesus and the gospel message is good news. But I just want you to know that the good news also includes, ready? God reigns. God reigns. I want a nation of people who are willing to let the world know God reigns. And that's good news. Incredible. The good news is God reigns. I don't know if you know this, but it is good news that God reigns. When all hell is breaking loose, it's good to know God reigns. That's good news. So the mission of Israel was to demonstrate to the world, God reigns. But then God adds the word priests. Within the culture, a priest had two characteristics, and the first one was to mediate, to be a mediator. Some of us know this. They go on behalf of God. They go talk with God on behalf of the people, go confess the sins to God, kind of come in between people and God. We know that before Jesus Christ tore the veil, we had to use a priest, and the priest would go to God. They'd go on behalf of God and speak for God and relay God's messages to the people. It was a mediator. But a mediator did more than just communicate what God was speaking. A mediator displayed what God was like. If God was angry, the priest would come out and display anger. If God was proud, the priest would come out and display pride or proud in the people. If God was displaying love, he would come out and display love. The purpose of the priest wasn't just to mediate by words. It was to to display the way God was acting, the way he was behaving and who he was in that moment. In other words, he's saying, I'm looking for people 
and I want them to be people. And the mission is for them to not just be people who obey me, people who display me. Israel, I want people all around you. When they look at you, I want them to see me. That's the way God loves. By the way they would love. I I want people to see me by the way you conduct your life. That is the mission of this nation. You brought us out of slavery into a desert to tell us you want us to demonstrate who you are to the world. That they were to be like him. In which case some Israelites said, to kind of understanding. We'd better be off back over there, back in slavery. Because you want us to be like you? It's a high calling. Big mission. A kingdom of priests. He doesn't stop there. He says a holy nation. Everyone say kadosh. Kadosh is the Hebrew word, means set apart. So I want you to be set apart. I want you to live differently. There's going to be a different way that you operate from all those around you. You are to be set apart. Different. You can be a kingdom, people who obey me. You're going to be priests, people who display me. And on top of that, you are set apart and you will be different than the world around you. And to help them understand exactly this idea... He told them to do something. And he said, I never want you to forget this. I don't want you to forget what you're called out here to do. The mission ultimately is, I want you to obey me. That's the mission. Obey me, and my my will, I'm the king, will be done. So I'm calling a nation to be my helper. And if you just obey me, my kingdom will come. And my will will be done. But I'm looking for a nation to obey me. And I've called you. And that is your mission. Obey me. And just as a reminder to obey me and how important it is that you obey me, I'm going to make you do something. I'm going to tell you to do something so you never forget how important it is to obey me. In Numbers chapter 15, verse 37, we read what God tells them to do. Then the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. Throughout the generations to come, you must make tassels. 
for the hems of your clothing and attach them with a blue cord. When you see the tassels, you will remember and obey all the commands of the Lord instead of following your own desires and defiling yourselves. And this line made me just like, I get it, as you are prone to do. You see, God knew that you are prone to disobey, not obey. You and me are more prone to disobey than obey. Have you ever found it hard to obey? All the time. You ever find it difficult to disobey? Never. You're like, that was easier. (laughs) Because you are more prone to look out for yourself. You're more prone to disobey God. You and I are more prone to disobey than we are to obey. And God knows that because he made you. And he saw what happened when sin came into the world and it destroyed it and it brought chaos into the world and into our hearts. And so you need a reminder, humans, nation of Israel, you're going to need a constant nagging reminder to obey me and not give in to your own desires. You're going to desire delicious food. Maybe he would say to Eve, or you'll desire things, money and fame and all kinds of grand things. But you're going to need a reminder in those moments in your life to not give in and to instead obey me. So you're going to wear some tassels. I don't know about you, but I need like more of a headset. Constantly God's voice right here, Morgan Freeman in my voice, obey me on repeat. That I think would have been better for for me. (laughs) Um, But he says tassels. So the tassels will help you remember that you must, you must obey me. I'm not debating this with you. Come on, parents. I'm telling you, you must. These are not up for negotiation. To fulfill the will of my kingdom, you must All my commands and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that I might be your king, your God. I am the Lord, in case you forgot I just said it, your God. I think God knew they needed to take notes and he weren't taking notes. He's like, I'm gonna keep saying it until you understand I am the Lord, your God. Okay. So, a tassel If you want to write it down, just spell it out. I don't think we have it on the screen. T-Z-I-T-Z-I-T. 
That is a tassel. It's a, I hope I'm saying it right. I think I am. Tzitzit. You want me to say it again or you want me to spell it for you? Oh. T-Z-I-T-Z-I-T. And the T is not pronunciated. It's pronunciated with an S. And this, uh, I brought one, brought my tal talit in. I have one. A talit is the clothing or the robe that they would wear. And maybe some of you have seen this, uh, whether you've been to Israel or not, this is mine. And I'm not trying to be Jewish. I'm not Jewish. I am 100% Gentile. And, um, but I, I bought one of these a couple of years ago and uh, just started to learn more about it and read about it. And so I decided to, to get one of these. And a talit is what they were to do. And they were to put these on the corners, if you can read it in your text, and I'll just show it like this, and they were to take these tassels, and on these tassels, by the way, there's eight strings here at the bottom. Most modern ones today don't have a blue thread in the middle. These did, and you could debate probably a lot in Scripture about why he said to put a blue one in, but the truth is, it's not really clear, which I think is intentional. In other words, I want you to obey me, but I'm not going to tell you why. Anyways. So, to take these tassels, and these tassels are going to remind you to obey me. Now, if you look at this, there is five knots wrapped around with one string. They're kind of all tied. And then you've got eight tassels here, and you've got one tassel on each corner, four, four corners. The reason they use eight here and five knots is because of a number system in the Hebrew alphabet. So, in Hebrew, the word tzitzit, the value of it, or is it talit? I'm sorry, it's talit. The value of these words add up to the number 600, the value of the letters. And then 8 plus 5, 5 knots plus 8 tassels is 13, so you get 613 laws. Now, when, what I care about the most that you get out of this is, I want you to wear tassels around you. And when you wear this robe, when you wear this piece of clothing over you, okay, and you put this on top of you, I want you to allow these tassels to fall. And they wear them two in the front, two in the rear, and so you kind of have them drag. And if you had sandals on, and this is what I started to get a picture of. As you're wearing this, these tassels on the ends of your garments are going to remind you to obey me. 613 laws. Some of us can't even remember what God told us to do yesterday. Some of us have to be told by God to do something 25 times the same thing before we get the next thing. Now just think about this. I want you to be a nation who obeys all 613 things I've told you to do. And I want you to wear a constant reminder of that. Now, Picture yourself in some form of shoe with open toes. They don't have Nikes or boots, per se. Some bare feet. Walking in the desert. Traveling on rough terrain. Climbing mountains. Having to walk without tripping over your tassels. 
In other words, I think God intentionally put something, have you ever had somebody tickle your nose with a tassel? You know? How easy it would be to be like, take this off of me. But God says, no, you need a constant reminder, and I'm going to put something around you that just becomes a little annoying sometimes, quite honestly. You can step on it, you trip over it, and you're constantly to remember that every time you touch one of these tassels, to obey me. I want you to remember to obey what I tell you to do. It's an incredible thing he tells this nation to do and the importance of them obeying God. So today, and see many Jews wear these, of course, and you would think, well, thank God I'm not Jew. I don't have to wear this article of clothing and constantly trip over tassels. Unfortunately, even though you're not Jewish, maybe, you're not off the hook. You're not off the hook. Jesus said the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second one is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And this fulfills all 613 laws. So if you think it's hard to follow 613 laws, just follow one that I just summed it up in. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now it's going to get heavy in this room, and it should, because this is a heavy calling and it's a heavy mission. Peter writes this to the Gentiles. If you're not Jewish, that's you. Verse 8. First Peter 2. They stumble because they do not obey God's word. And so they meet the fate that was planned for them. What happens when you disobey? But you are not like that, Gentile. No, you are a chosen people too. You are royal priests. You are a holy nation. You are to not only mediate and speak for on behalf of me. No, you're to demonstrate me to this world. And you are to live set apart, holy. God's very own possession. You are my prize, and I find great value in you too, Gentile. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of slavery and into light. Are you catching what he's saying? I am carrying over the nation of Israel and their calling and their mission, and now it is your mission too. Verse 11, dear friends, I warn you, don't forget your only temporary residence here. You are temporary residents and foreigners to keep away 
from the worldly desires that wage war against your souls. You're prone to disobey. You're always prone to disobey. You still disobey, and you're prone to do so, and the war is real in your soul. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors, all those around you in the world, then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior. I want them to see me when they see your behavior. Wow. And they will give honor to God when he judges the world. In other words, Peter writes, when they see you, they should see him. Wow. Question. Do you want people to judge what God is like by what they see in you? No, no, no. You didn't hear me. Do you really want people to see what God is like, to judge who God is by the way you live your life? How are you doing? No, really, how are we doing? How are we doing? That's your mission. I know we've always thought the mission is just go reach the lost. No, no, no. I propose to you a much higher mission than just reaching the lost. That's a component of it. But the mission is to demonstrate God to the world, which Jesus did. He came down, demonstrated his love of the Father to the world while we're still sinners. So he is the demonstration, the perfect demonstration of that. No question about it. But that doesn't remove the mission of his followers to reveal who God is to the world by the way we live amongst one another. I love this great quote by C.S. Lewis. It says, to have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you're trying to obey him. But trying in a new way, a less worried way, not doing these things in order to be saved. We're saved by grace. This isn't about salvation. But because he has begun to save you already, I love this, not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint, a glimpse of heaven is already inside you. That is the reason for which we obey. Because we have a taste of heaven inside of us and his spirit lives in those as believers. And so now out of that spirit comes the manifestation of God and this is who God is while I'm on earth. And so I literally bring Heaven on earth when I love in such a way that doesn't make sense and like God loves. This is how they're to come to know God through you. You are to be a royal priest, a holy nation set apart, demonstrating and displaying obedience to God and through that showing the world who I am. That is why I brought you out of slavery and into freedom. Not so that you can have a better life. 
I didn't bring you out of slavery. I didn't call you and save you so that you could have greater and finer things and the blessings could just be poured out on you. No, I brought you from a sinner to a saved, righteous individual before me so that someone else could look at you and see me and they too could come to know me. I am the Lord, their God and your God and I want the world to know that. So how are you doing? How are we doing? Faith lesson. Obedience is a requirement to take a hold of God's promises in your life. But it's a choice, and the choice is yours. This is not about heaven and hell, folks. This is not about salvation today. This is about you, every man in this room, every woman in this room, which is everybody. This is about you taking a hold of God's promise for your life. You must obey. And praise God that he came in flesh and he put himself on a cross. Thank God that he would demonstrate the love of God to the world so you could clearly see what it looks like to love like him. No greater love than this, to lay down your life for a friend. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice and he shows you and he shows me how to conduct your life. When someone is in need, if you have the means to meet it, you do it. How are you doing? How are we doing? I want them to know how much I love them by the way you love them. Just wrap your head around that for just a minute, church. How loving are you? Really loving. I want them to know my forgiveness. And in case you want to know what my forgiveness looks like, I'll demonstrate it to you. And I will put myself on a cross and I'll take punishment for something I didn't do and I will take it on me and I'll show you what forgiveness looks like and then here's what I want you now to do I don't want you just tell people don't just tell people about my forgiveness tell them yes but I want them to see how I forgive by how you forgive. And when they see how you forgive, I want you to point them to me and say it's because of me. I want you to be the royal priest. I want you to demonstrate that. I want you to be the mediator. How are you doing? How are we doing? The poor... Jesus demonstrated it as he walked through towns and villages and he met needs and he broke bread and he fed 5,000 and, and he talks endlessly about taking care of the poor. 
how you treat the poor, I want to be a reflection of how I care about the poor. How are you doing? How are we doing? It's no wonder why so many people are not coming to faith in Christ and why yet so many people are at the same time. How are we doing? How are you doing? You want to know how to serve, Jesus says. I'll show you how to serve. And he washes the disciples' feet. He says, you understand, I got to do this to demonstrate to you how to serve one another. Now go and do likewise. I want them to know what kind of a serving God I am by the way you serve one another. Truth be told, man, it's crazy. In church world, there is like massive creative meetings about how to get people to just volunteer for one day a month. We have to get really creative about how to do it. We're going to play a certain song. We're going to play this really moving video. And then we're, because you can't just get up and say, hey, serve. Because that just doesn't do it. So we create all these different ways to try to get all of your emotions stirred in order to get you to give or serve. Jesus didn't have projectors and all kinds of stuff up in the mountain of Sinai. You know what stood above all things? Ready? His word. Submission. And you're to give like I gave. How are you doing? How are we doing? You're to serve like I served. How are you doing? How are we doing? You're to love like I love. You're to work like I worked. How are you doing? This is your mission. This was their mission, and it's our mission. One bright to Prayer team, if you would come forward, Phil, again. And um, we want to pray with you. If you want somebody to pray with you, we're going to sing a song here. And uh, we're here to pray with you. So you can come forward if you need prayer for something. And um, I'm just going to take a moment and allow you to pray. Go to the Lord. And we're here for you for the next minute or two. And then I'll come back up and I'll close out. You are 
so thankful for your time in this place. <laughs> Lord, our spirits are encouraged. We're not deflated, Lord. You reign, God. You reign. And we say it in our hearts. You reign. We're not ashamed to say that you reign. You reign. And when chaos abounds, your peace abounds more. God, you speak and peace comes. You reign. You're the provider of all things, God. You're creator of all things. 
your Savior. And you are our King. And you reign. And that's good news. We don't leave down in our disobedience. We're so grateful that you as a loving Father come by and you pick us up. And you allow us to shake off the dust, so to speak, and pick up our mat and carry it and continue to pursue righteousness. And you've forgiven our sins and times that we've disobeyed. Your mercy abounds more and more and how you love to display your mercy and grace. Where grace is so powerful, how it overcomes judgment all the time and your love just keeps pouring out on us. You set a great example of a loving father and a loving mother and a loving friend and a loving God. You are the one we look to. You reign. And today we say yes. We surrender. We say yes. We want to follow you. We want to demonstrate you. And Lord, I pray that you would remind us in moments where we have a thought of disobedience. Oh, Jesus, how we're going to need your spirit to help us and to give us the strength that only lives in you, that you put in us to help us to follow. And when we're prone to disobey, <laughs> oh, Jesus, would you let your mercy overcome us and your grace overcome us and point us back north to you and Father. Thank you for the mission, for displaying a perfect example. Jesus, thank you for showing us who you are. Help us to make you known to the world around us. We want to do that this week. We want to do it today. We want to do it with our children. We want to show them who you are by the way we live our life. You're a good God. Thank you. Amen. Amen, church.